Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. Now, uh, as I was saying, uh, we'll wrap up the Maya today and start talking about uh, biological anthropology, um, which largely looks at the human body as an artifact, um, as well as some um, human evolution. So I left off talking about how there was a reciprocal relationship uh, between rulers, gods, and uh, the peasants in the Maya area where uh, everybody was providing something uh, in return for something else. So the farmers providing tribute and labor, the rulers, blood and sacrifices, the gods, rain and sustenance. And so we can see where when the rain, which, you know, if we're being um, empirical Westerners about it, the rain has nothing to do with the blood and sacrifice of rulers, and so uh, relying on the rain, uh, relying on uh, the gods for rain, if that breaks down, you can see where the farmers might get upset with the rulers. This happened also in Egypt, where they had very elaborate, um, elaborate rituals surrounding the flood, which was completely out of the control of the rulers, uh, the pharaohs there, uh, yet their fate and success was tied to this natural phenomenon that they were responsible for maintaining, so kind of a tough spot for them to be in, although they certainly got, why is this call on, there's a wolf pack alert, oh, I see, sorry, there was, phone was making noise. Anyway, um, and so we can see the same sort of thing happening here. Um, but it wasn't all tough and difficult for the rulers. They certainly lived pretty high on the hog. This is a lintel. Uh, or the uh, top of a door or an entryway from the classic period at the site of Yashchilan. And what we're looking at is a ruler here who's standing with a stylized torch. So here's the fire coming out and the flames and smoke uh, emanating from this torch. And he's, you know, wearing these jade, uh, jade ornaments and uh, the Quetzal feathers. So basically he's wearing the equivalent of gold because that, these green um, feathers and stones were the signs of wealth. And here is his wife who is pulling a cord of either thorns or um, those obsidian blades I told you about embedded in a rope, pulling them through her tongue, a hole in her tongue, to uh, bleed out onto the uh, codex here which would then be burned, and in another scene we see it calling forth one of her ancestors, so she's probably conjuring uh, one of her ancestors uh, to probably intercede or to communicate between this world and the next. Um, if you think about it, where they're letting their blood from uh, is their mouth, and the rulers, one of their primary ways that they did their work was by speaking, so by cutting your tongue you are giving from your most important or your most vital public uh, organ, right? And that's also the reason that um, blood was let from the penis, because 
part of the ruler's job was to procreate uh, the next generation of rulers and things like that. So obviously, um, the tongue and the penis were quite important uh, for the functioning of their offices, right? And so letting blood from that was especially dangerous. It's not just like, you know, nicking your finger to do like a diabetic test, which, you know, heals up in a second. No, this is pretty serious. Okay. So again, um, we can see the, the great uh, social stratification in these murals from Bonham Park, where we have the rulers up top, and these are captured warriors whose thumbnails, or they're likely scribes, whose thumbnails have been pulled out. So kind of like uh, taking, you know, sacrificing what's important to them, just like the rulers sacrificing from their penis or tongue. Here we have uh, scribes whose fingernails have been pulled out. Um, they're captured after a, a war. This is a whole series of murals. But it just shows the real level of social stratification and uh, division among people here. So. Um, uh, the poor farmers working here. Okay, so um, moving on to natural disasters. For the most part, uh, the ancient Maya world was, uh, I don't want to say benign. It's not, not as benign as, say, Italy, but there are a limited number of natural disasters that befall them. There are minor earthquakes and volcanism in the south. So earthquakes were certainly a uh, part of Mesoamerican myths because it's a tectonically active area. Uh, and volcanism, uh, we have sites like Seren, which was the New World Pompeii that was covered with um, ash and soot. Um, so there are certainly areas, but they're known areas. If you live in an earthquake area, you know. If you live in a volca volcanically active area, you know. So it wasn't like completely out of the blue. And then in the north, um, as well as to the south, to some extent, they would get hurricanes, um, which would have been at that time completely unexpected because they didn't have satellites. Uh, Von Daniken and other uh, alien friends excluded. So uh, it would have been a, a shock to have that hurricane bear down on you. And there are certainly, actually, the word hurricane is one of uh, two words um, that, well, so the word shark comes from Maya. The Maya word for shark is shulk. Um, and it was uh, taken into Spanish and then taken into English. So that's one of the few Maya words that we actually have in English. Um, and hurricane may or may not be a new, I think it's a new world, uh, but I don't think it's Maya. Anyway, uh, so, and you know, other natural disasters are kind of slow moving things like drought. And we're going to talk about that right now. So talking about the collapse. It's the early theories of collapse are monocausal. Monocausal meaning they have one cause. So it was a drought, or a fire, or a earthquake, or a specific disease, or a peasant revolt. Right, because the rains have stopped, and the and there's you know there were some like uh, very Marxian or anti-Marxist. Uh, arguments about the peasants rising up and destroying their rulers. There's um, conquered by central Mexicans or trade marginalized uh, and driving down the uh, economy of, this, of the Maya area. Those were really popular in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And even today, when you see, you know, like, why did the ancient Maya collapse in popular articles online, they're looking for one silver bullet. 
And I think the reason is, and this is my opinion, I'm not saying this as fact, but this is my opinion, I think it is very mm, enticing for us to look for a single cause for the collapse of ancient civilizations because if it's one cause, we can, you know, if we're facing collapse at some point and it's only one thing that does it, well, why don't we guard against that one thing, right? Remember, I don't know if you guys remember, but the ozone hole over the south, uh, the Antarctic used to be this huge cause and we banned CFCs and reduced all of the different um, ozone depleting things and now that hole is building, is, is shrinking, hooray, right? If it was one thing that the Maya were facing, maybe they could have overcome it. And by, def by comparison, if we were facing one thing, if, if, if climate change, for example, was to be seen as our one thing, if it was only being caused by a single action, well, we'd stop that one action. But because it's so complex and embedded in our system, it's hard to do. Similarly with the Maya, there were many interconnected things going on, and it wasn't just one earthquake or depletion of the soil or... Um, drought that caused them to collapse. It was many, many things uh, that came together. And it also, it took a long time. We're talking over 100 years. So it wasn't like one day we have all these sites, and then the next year every, everything's collapsed and in disarray, right? Uh, there was no Maya carnage, <laughs> this Maya carnage. Uh, we had uh, also, the collapse was defined by archaeologists who studied these big sites, like Tikal. And uh, they were interested in writing and monuments and elite burials. And they were interested in the top 5% of society, largely. And so when they talk about collapse, they're like, oh, no, all of this stopped. Well, it stopped for 5% of the population. What happened to the other 95%? Uh, and a lot of what's going on now is called household archaeology, where you dig up like a house, like in a suburb here instead of looking, you know, digging up the governor, governor's mansion. You'd get a very different picture because in this case, 95% uh, or 90 to 95% of the population were subsistence farmers. So what does the collapse of the elites have to do with their survival? Uh, it might be indicative, but it, very likely there were different things going on. So we can't judge the entire society by just the disappearance of all this elite crap. I'm being a little uh, jocular there. I don't want to call it crap. I'm not, I shouldn't give it a value judgment, but they've given it so much weight uh, that it needs to be taken down a peg anyway. Um, I should also note that the Maya didn't disappear. Uh, they're still there. There's still a million people who speak Maya languages, uh, people who live in thatched huts that, like when I was doing my dissertation, I was living in this little town called Popolad, had 300 people. I was living in like a thatched hut with one electrical outlet that we would always blow the fuse because we had uh, all our computers and stuff plugged into it so we could get our work done and watch movies at night. Uh, and, uh, you know, no AC, of course. It was blowing through. We had, when we had a hurricane come through, we had to, like, put tarps up so the w wind wouldn't blow or the water right through the walls because they were just sticks. Anyway, so we were living in this, like, pretty basic house, thatched hut. And uh, when we were excavating a house, one day, one of my workers was like, hey, this house, the way they build the foundations and the size of the house and where the kitchen is and the door, this is just like we build our houses. It's like, yeah, you guys live in traditional houses. Like, those are the same technology that they've been building. I mean, you use twine from a baler 
uh, from, uh, instead of vines to tie your logs together, but you're still doing basically everything the same. You have nails, but you don't, you know, instead of tying them together. But they were like completely blown away. And so as soon as he realized that, he said it to me in Spanish, and then he said it to the other guys in Maya, and there was this like huge conversation going on in Maya where they're like, wow, these guys are just like us. And I'm like, you guys are speaking Maya. <laughs> Living in a subsistence farming town where you grow corn in the same way that they did a thousand years ago in houses that are exactly the same. And you're speaking Maya. I don't know why that blew your mind, but it was great. Because then they were really excited about excavating this house. And they had like, they're like, this, this could be our ancestors. I'm like, could be. Like, it's been a thousand years. There's probably a lot of DNA flowing back and forth and changing and people coming in and out, but certainly could be. Anyway, that was a fun day. Um, so the term collapse is probably a little subjective because A, we're focusing on one part of society and what, what is collapse? Usually it's a negative connotation. We're saying it got from a, a good thing to a bad thing, right? Uh, and as anthropologists, we're not really into labeling things as good or bad. We're more into descriptive labels. So maybe like things got less socially complex. The social hierarchy was decreased. Um, urbanization or the how tightly people live together decreased, right? Those are objective markers and things we can describe, whereas collapse is kind of tied up in emotional um, talking uh, points, right? Like it's a, it's, a, it's a very emotional thing. So uh, perhaps collapse is a little too subjective. Transition is more descriptive, but it's pretty bland. Oh, the great Maya transition <laughs> does not invoke the idea of what's going on nearly as well. And there are certainly people who critique. There's a lot of write about collapse of ancient societies. Uh, and a lot of people critique using bland, vanilla language like transition because that doesn't really tell the whole story. So. Um, ba -ba 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 -ba. So populations and trade continued to exist. We don't see a huge population collapse outside of the cities. The cities, for sure. Um, but trade really starts to change. Um, in the classic period, trade was um, elite things. Elite treats is one of my favorite ways to say it. Um, jade, uh, uh, the Quetzal feathers, uh, fancy pottery, fancy food, uh, chocolate, things like that. Uh, and later. After the collapse, we see, the collapse. There we go. Uh, after the transition, we see uh, trade being driven largely by mercantile interests. So trading uh, cloth, trading uh, commodities rather than elite uh, fancy uh, items. One um, likely driver of this collapse was. The fact that we see uh, populations disperse suggests that populations living closely together, so cities, uh, might not have been able to sustain themselves anymore. Uh, cities are really hard on the environment, and they take in a lot of food, a lot of fuel, a lot of water, and uh, they cause deforestation, which may or may not be useful for the uh, surrounding ecosystem. Depends uh, how it's done, how it's managed or not. Uh, and so a lot of time around cities, you'll get this growing ring of kind of deg uh, degraded environment um, being degraded from the natural state or the less um, built up 
And sometimes that's sustainable. And you pick, you have a small enough city, you can, you know, use the stuff within your area to support yourself. That's one thing. But if you have too many people and not enough area, it can um, cause collapse. So what people do then is spread out of the city to areas with more space per person. Um, and that reduces their impact on the local environment. Um, we see an increase in warfare. This is the site of Dos Pilas in the southern lowlands. This is what it looked like during the classic. We have a nice pyramid. Another pyramid over here has got some range structures, maybe some sort of palace back here. But uh, near the collapse at the end of this site's history, we see it torn apart. And they tear down the palaces. And they build these double defensive walls um, with openings and gates and things like that. They tear the facing stones off of their buildings to build walls. Um, this suggests warfare, right? Uh, obviously. Uh, at this time, we see increased inscriptions and depictions of warfare. Um, this certainly is in an elite center, so it's hard to say whether or not it was the kind of warfare that, like, it's unlikely that it was like Braveheart warfare, where like giant armies were like fighting. Uh, warfare in um, the ancient Maya world appears to be more on the Japanese model, where you had like professional warriors, like samurai, uh, who would fight, and they would, you know, have very pitched battles amongst individuals, and they would catch, uh, get captives and bring them back and then sacrifice them and things like that. But uh, for this, this is a little different, because here we're having like a besieged central precinct, which is unusual. We don't have castles or things like that, really, in the Maya area. So there's definitely an increase in warfare or conflict at this time, which may suggest both civil unrest and perhaps some sort of um, problem with the food, uh, food and resources. OK, the environment was absolutely, certainly one factor. Is it the only factor, or is it the straw that broke the camel's back? Again, it's unfair to say that, because like the straw that breaks the camel's back is one of like thousands of straws on the camel's back. It just happens to be the last one that's put on there. right? All those previous straws are also contributing to breaking that camel's back. So is the changing environment at this time the straw? Maybe, but it's working in tandem with many, many other things. So we have to remember that the environment, in this case, because we just learned about how we reconstruct the ancient environment, we're using this as a case study, the environment affects trade, but trade also affects the environment. Ditto social organization, agriculture, obviously, and catastrophes. Um, changing environment will change each of those, but also changing uh, trade, social organization, agriculture, and catastrophes or resilience will also change the environment. We have to remember that they're all interconnected. So what's going on in the environment? So here is a really large, kind of complicated uh, <laughs> uh, slide showing a couple different things. So let's start at the top. So up here is what's called the Interpolity War Index. This is something that a scholar came up with. And uh, it's kind of it's a little subjective because they're choosing what constitutes warfare, and then they're counting it by period. Uh, in this case, I believe it is mentioned in glyphic texts of conflicts and war. Um, and there's a subset of glyphs that mention these things. And so they can count the frequency of them and correct it for the number of inscriptions at that time. And they get a relative um, idea of how much warfare is discussed in, in, in description or in inscriptions. One problem with this data source, of course, is sometimes you don't write about war. Like, 
It might be uncouth to talk about it. Or maybe you're glorifying war so you talk about any old little conflict, right? So take that as, as you know, asterisk by this interpolity warfare. It's not counting what we would um, necessarily objectively call war or not. Anyway, so here we have, oh, change that delta, delta 18 oxygen. So the change in the oxygen 18 isotopes around here. Um, and so we can see the rise and fall of uh, the oxygen 18 ratio to oxygen 16 in the, um, in the uh, climate record here. And when it goes down here, these are drier periods. And when it's up high, it's wet. And so you can see this prolonged kind of high wet period from a lot, really, the beginning of the classic all the way through the end of the classic. And then we dip into these dry areas. It bounces back, and then it gets dry again. And you can see at periods like this, period of drought corresponds to a number of war-related events here. Total number of dated monuments, total number of urban centers, they decline very precipitously as it gets dry. Oops, sorry. If we look at the bottom, again, we're looking at that uh, oxygen 18. And we can see things like uh, historic droughts and famines. So this is recorded by the Aztec. This was a major drought that killed many, many people. And they record it. And we see it in the climatological record. We see another one here. So there are certainly uh, historical corroborations to these droughts so that it's not just reliant on the, um, on the oxygen 18 isotopes. But it's nice that they do coincide. That helps. Um, but we can certainly see. Here at the end of the Terminal Classic, this deep recession of water. Um, so yeah, it's certainly a uh, climate. Mm, climate certainly played a large role. And if you want to look at some big, ugly uh, flow chart of how this all stuck together, um, we have regional declines in precipitation, uh, which stresses cultivation and water sources. So uh, people would have moved farther out to cut down old forests for fuel as the areas closer to cities weren't regenerating. Um, it would have had problems throughout the entire system with uh, loss of soil as uh, things dry out. Uh, good topsoil blows away a little easier. Um, people tried to reduce the loss of water and loss of topsoil by terracing um, places uh, that are hilly. Right, so there's certainly uh, people built reservoirs in the north, uh, especially they are very keen on building water collection reservoirs and had large uh, lakes, fake, excuse me, fake, uh, human-made lakes in the middle of their cities uh, with steps going down into them so you could get water out of them. Um, yeah, there, there was a lot uh, going on. It was all interconnected. This is a lot of the agriculture. So here, let's... Um, if we take a second here, we can kind of trace. I'll turn the light on because that's kind of dark. Boop, boop, boop. So even just thinking about it, oops, light on. There we go. So what would be obvious ways that environmental change would affect, say, agriculture for the Maya? Yeah. Drought means less food. Yeah. What else, agriculture-wise? Remember what kind of... Uh... Does that volcanic soil? Volcanic soil is rich after a while. 
because it's got a lot of it's got a lot of nice nutrients and stuff in it. Thick volcanic soil is usually a pretty good growing medium. However, it can wear out. Um, so that's certainly something that can happen over time. Um, but we can also remember that they use these chinampas, and they're in wetlands, these wetland fields. Well, the wetlands are drying up at this time. And so your wetland fields that are super productive, well, they're no longer as productive as they used to be. So that's going to be a, a significant problem. Um, what about uh, environmental uh, change and trade? Uh, what do we have any uh, effects of uh, environmental trade on change? Yeah. With Right, uh, river transport certainly would have changed. Yeah, you could have uh, a lot more rapids, a lot more dangerous rocky rapids than you would otherwise, perhaps. Uh, but uh, also a narrowing or yeah, lessening of river transport that would be a big problem. Yeah, that's a good one. Anyone else? Okay, yeah, that's that's a good one. Um, just the unpredictability also of um, trade goods might not be as easily available. Uh, so cotton or chocolate or other. Um, usually trade is done in high value, low weight goods, like chocolate or things like that. So your trade goods might also decline as environments change. Social organization, I kind of already harped on this one. How does uh, environmental change link to social organization for the Maya? What do the rulers do? Right, and so if the climate is given up, uh, this is seen socially as people being uh, the rulers aren't doing their job because the gods aren't bringing them uh, water anymore. Right, uh, so that's one big problem for social organization. We could also look at uh, one change or effect that we would see would be dispersal. So uh, because it's drier. Um, and it's harder for cities to maintain themselves. People moved out of the cities, so they had more space for themselves, kind of getting back to the land. Um, so resilience is largely how one is able to withstand natural disasters. If you have really solid agriculture, really solid trade, a good social organization, you know, you're, and uh, maybe a, a pretty constant environment, you're probably going to be able to withstand an earthquake or a flood or things like that. However, if you're already on the precipice of collapsing and you have you know, a weak agriculture, uncertain trade, uh, or upheaval in your social organization, if you get a nasty earthquake or a hurricane, that could really you know, cause the end of, of, uh, of your community, right? So. Um, Environmental change, how might that affect natural disasters and your ability to withstand them? What are we seeing? Anybody? Yeah, natural disasters on top of on top of strain system. Um, okay, good. I was like, oh, no, am I that far over? No, I'm not. Okay. Um, yeah, sure. And what are we seeing, uh, for example, now with uh, climate change and natural disasters? What's happening to them? Because of uh, climate change, we're seeing 
yeah, increasing. Um, so I'm going to put this down here. Increasing in size and intensity um, as warmer air holds more moisture. We're seeing, you know, things like thunderstorms two nights ago in February. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I mean, that's not, and I hate what, I'm, excuse me, I don't like when people do like, oh, it's raining in February, so it's climate change. Well, one rain in February is not climate change, but an entire month of February, an entire month of February, that's the warmest February on record? Okay, that's over a month, that's significant. Anyway, yeah. <coughs> excuse me, and they had to make fake snow for the winter festival? Anyway, um, so yeah, increasing, um, increasing intensity. Um, yeah, and similarly with, with the Maya, they may have been experiencing more, uh, more or less hurricanes. They might have had, um, yeah, drought would have been eventually over time. Drought's kind of like a slow rolling disaster because you don't know you're in a drought until you're in it. Um, and it takes a while, and once you're there, it's like, well, it's not like we could have planned for it. We haven't had rain for seven months or whatever, right? So, um, so drought's kind of a, a slow-moving disaster. Um, so if we then sort of think about how the Maya were affected by environmental change, um, we could ask the same questions about, you know, how is environmental change um, affecting, affecting us? Um, so, you know, drought is certainly an issue. Um, and in California, for example, where we get a lot of our fruits and vegetables in the U.S., it's like anywhere from 60 to 90% of your vegetables and fruits and uh, nuts and things like that come from California. That's a lot. Um, and so when they've been experiencing a drought, obviously that's um, had some effect on the rest of us in terms of prices, number one, but also, you know, they're exporting their water. They're using their, what the water they do have to continue to grow foods to export to us, right? So, yeah. 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 So it's it's a little nuts, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, to think about. They're really exporting water when they export food, and they're in a major drought. Um, so you know that's, and it certainly has been up until recently sustainable, where they've been able to use the water that's coming in to grow all that food and you know, make the desert bloom or whatever that they wanted to do in the 1950s. And you can debate about how appropriate it was, but it has been able to keep pace with itself. But with the latest drought, that's been decreasing. We'll see what happens now that they've had some record, finally, they have record, uh, or they have a reasonable snow cover again. So we'll see what happens. They almost lost a dam because too much water came down. So massive swings. So that's certainly something we can think about. Um, Trade, um, obviously, as we're seeing environmental change, we are going to have to deal with um, trade in terms of bringing things from farther away, right? Um, we are not able to be self-sufficient in our own little neck of the woods anymore because our system has been, since the 1950s really, uh, turning more and more to long-distance transportation to bring in more efficiently produced goods and things like that. So we become dependent on that long distance trade, which with environmental change could change in some ways because, for example, you know, if we were being proactive on the carbon emissions, well, then maybe we'd have to do less long distance trade because it's largely driven by fossil fuels. But even without that, we're going to see increased storm activity um, and 
problems with that, uh, what's the word, uh, with, the, uh, with the trade infrastructure, which often supports the export of almonds from California. Social organization, um, yeah. Uh, with environmental change, it's, it's kind of like drought. It's slow moving, and until people start getting hungry or having uh, real day-to-day -day problems, we might not see uh, real correlated effects from environmental change to social unrest. Um, but we're the first society in history where uh, food isn't, I don't mean to minimize the amount of people that are food insecure right now, but we are the best fed society in human history, period. Um, and so I find it interesting because a lot of times social unrest comes when people are hungry, right? There's the commercials about if you're, uh, you're not yourself when you're hungry, eat a Snickers or whatever, or you know, you're hangry. Hangry, yeah. So social unrest, like the biggest, one of the biggest precipitating causes of the French Revolution was, was price of bread. People were eating two pounds of bread a day. That's where they were getting most of their calories. So when the grain prices went up so high, uh, the peasants revolted, right? Well, we're the peasants, but we're just not hungry. So we uh, sit back complacently. There's, that's complete oversimplification. But certainly environmental change uh, could affect our food security as we talk about agriculture and trade. And perhaps that would lead to social unrest, although social unrest can come from other things as well, ideological more than hungry. But hungry is a big one. And then resilience, um, you know, I look, so environmental change is really going to, as we said, increase the intensity um, of natural disasters and their frequency. We shall see, you know, they talk about superstorms and things like that now. Um, if we're already having trouble with other things because of major environmental change, we might want to look very carefully at preparing in emergency systems rather than being reactive we should maybe be proactive, but then again, that is a proactive suggestion and probably wouldn't get anywhere. Okay, so um, I've mentioned collective hubris. So when we're talking about the ancient Maya, you can kind of picture, you know, uh, and have a little bit of sympathy for a ruler who is, you know, let's take Tikal, where they had 20 some rulers in a line. So you imagine you're the 24th, I don't remember if that's the right number, 20-somethingth ruler in your family who's ruled this town, city, one of the preeminent cities of the world that you know of, uh, for you know, 500 years. And how have you done it? Well, you've done it through you know, making relationships with your regional partners by trading elite goods. You've um, supported your town and city and your and your citizens by making sure that you know the regional agricultural produce was flowing, uh, not only by you know regulating the environment, but also by interceding on behalf of the people with the gods. Um, you're um, at the top of a social system that you know works basically to uh, give you a, a lot of power, um, and then you know finally you're able to. You live in a pretty comfortable area to call, especially there's not a lot of volcanism or really natural disasters other than, you know, pretty weak hurricanes that can reach inland. Anyway, so imagine all that. You know, 500 years of your family ruling a city, running the system this way. It's not, you can kind of forgive them for saying like, well, what should we do? The rain isn't coming. Well, 
what's worked in the past. Let's open up more fields. Let's you know, try and grow more corn. Let's try um, interceding on behalf of the gods. Let's you know, try and double down or keep going or uh, do more of what we've done in the past. You know? If we don't have enough now, just do more instead of doing something different. And so you can kind of maybe not excuse it, but you can kind of understand why they did that, right? I mean, it's not. I can see why they made the decision. I don't, I don't fault them necessarily for that, but it takes a special kind of person to say, like, oh, no, we're in trouble. Let's try something completely new, right? That's dangerous. That's scary. Um, people are risk averse. We've always grown our food this way. Now that we're running out of food, we're going to try something completely untested and new. Ugh. That sounds scary and dangerous. So. There was certainly hubris there. The Maya believed that the way that they were living their lives was the correct and proper way to live, and we should keep doubling down on that. And over time, as the in this case, the environment changed and affected all of the other systems, one by one, they collapsed, and they weren't able to support themselves in this current form. Very quickly, on the periphery of what used to be that central area, they, uh, the mercantile empires grew, like the, the Itza that ran Chichen Itza, they were a mercantile empire. They were like a trading cartel rather than like a, a divine rulership cult or anything like that. So there were certainly some people who changed how they were working, and that worked quite well. Um, so those that were able to adapt did survive and bounce back pretty quickly. All right, so that is the Maya in a nutshell. Are there any questions or comments or any? Clarification points that you guys would like to have? Oh, quiet. Okay. We are going to get into, very briefly, bioarchaeology. If I can find my lecture. So, um, yeah, abrupt shift of gears here. Um, and we're going to finish up bioarchaeology hopefully tomorrow to get back on track. And then we will uh, talk about I believe it's domestication after that. But so here, here nor there, let's get into bioarchaeology. Um, so bioarchaeology is also called physical anthropology or biological anthropology, um, although these are separate fields within Anthropology, they're, kind, they're, they're probably the closest related to archaeology because um, physical anthropologists use um, bones and things recovered from archaeological um, sites very often, um, although they go back usually much farther than archaeologists do. Usually archaeologists are, you know, the past 20, 30,000 years is kind of the lower limit of our time periods, whereas the bioarchs go back 7 million years um, since we split off with chimpanzees. Um, so bioarchaeology is a, a specialization in anthropology. Um, technically, anything is from the past and can be considered archaeological, uh, although we usually focus on, like I said, a couple different areas. Um, this was, I should put out a special note here, this was misused in the early 20th century by governments to enforce racist ideas. For example, uh, the Nazis had a very robust physical anthropology 
department, program, whatever, uh, that was supported by the state that went all over the world uh, racially classifying people and looking for evidence of the Caucasian, Aryan race, whatever. And uh, they had their racial nor excuse me, they had their racial narrative, and then they went and looked for evidence to back it up, which is kind of the opposite of what we should be doing, which is finding evidence to test our hypotheses and being able to reject those hypotheses when they are not supported by the data. The Nazis were having the theory and then cherry picking data to support it. I don't mean to pick on Nazis. Oh. No, they're easy to pick on. Uh, lots of governments have done this. The, the Soviets, uh, Soviet archaeology was looking for a class struggle in all uh, interpretations of past uh, societies uh, through Marxian um, advancement of societies. Uh, and you know, anthropologists in America also do this to some extent. Uh, they misuse not only physical anthropology, but uh, other archaeological data, uh, often I find it very interesting that whenever an archaeologist talks about, an American archaeologist talks about the economy in the past or trade, they talk about it as if it is a free market society, uh, like one that we believe we live in, um, regardless, uh, even if it's an apolitical person who doesn't think about politics or think that they're pushing a, a particular agenda, they certainly, because that's what we're exposed to, that's how the economy works for us, or how we see it as working, right? So it's, it's not just for nefarious purposes, sometimes it's accidentally nefarious, okay. Um, osteology is a specific part of bioarchaeology, it's the study of bones. Osteology is the study of human bones. Osteology is the study of human bones and um, a large part of what bioarchaeology is. Although not all of it, you can look at the human body in different ways as well. Um, and finally, uh, ethical issues surround this because you're dealing with the body of a person, uh, often someone's ancestor, well, almost certainly someone's ancestor or related to someone's ancestor. So there are all kinds of laws, uh, for example, in North America, or in, excuse me, in the US, we have NAGPRA. North American Graves Repatriation Act. Um, basically, this was a government rule in the 90s, I think, that um, if your institution received federal funding and you had any remains from an identifiable Native American group today, you had to offer to return those things to them. Um, this ranged from bodies to ceremonial war clubs or things like that, anything you had. Um, and so some, the, the trick is you had to be part of a recognizable tribe that is descended from that item. So in some cases it was really easy. You know, an Inuit, uh, canoe, or an Inuit kayak from the Smithsonian expedition in Alaska in the late 1800s is pretty clearly related to the people who are living there today. However, you have other things like the Kennewick Man, which was just returned. Um, the Kennewick Man, which was found in Oregon and dates to 10,000 years ago, when it is almost certain, and DNA evidence bears this out, it's almost certain that that person, this person's bones, had no relation to the tribe that lives in that area now. So it's not their ancestor. So technically, on one hand, you could see where you don't have to return that because it's not related to the tribe that's there. However, 
according to tribal um, practice, any burial or uh, remains on the land that is theirs um, or the, you know, their region that predates the arrival of Europeans is traditionally considered to be uh, an ancestor, whether it is an ancestor in the medical sense that perhaps the Western industrialized person might think, or a spiritual ancestor, doesn't matter, that's enough. And so they were able to argue, no, this is our ancestor, even if it's not a bloodline, they're in our area, they lived here before us, they're our, our forebearers, we want them back. And they just got them back, actually. Ken McMahon, uh, we'll talk about him more later on. Neat individual. Um, so uh, we're dealing with a couple different problems here, um, or challenges, I guess you'd say. Human remains are not always um, easy to come by. It's a small percentage of human remains that survive. Often they're in caves or other very special environments where they um, have been able to survive. Other, where they're out in the open, uh, we're going to see things like stains in the ground or partial remains, things like that. So it's not uh, necessarily uh, very common to find human remains. So when we do find them, it's a big deal. Um, Yeah, it's, it's, sometimes it's also hard to tell if you have a human bone or an animal bone, which sounds a little silly when you're looking at like a full bone, but often it's just like fragments of bone, so it can be a little bit of a difficulty. Um, we talked already about the bog people um, in, in Denmark and other bog-producing uh, northern European areas. Um, we talked also about uh, the ice mummies or the ice maidens in uh, higher altitudes of Peru where they were basically freeze-dried as all the moisture was sucked out of them, uh, similar to Itzi the Iceman. Um, so these are spectacular finds because they still exist. It's very rare for organics to survive so long. Um, another area that we're able to look at uh, the actual human beings in their soft tissue is at uh, Pompeii, where uh, these folks who died and were buried by ash, their bodies rotted away, or the soft tissue rotted away, and then uh, the cavities remained. And so uh, Giuseppe Ferrelli, um, which I'm sure I'm probably mispronouncing, uh, would fill them with plaster of Paris and then uh, dig away the soil, leaving these amazing uh, bodies or the, the casts of where their bodies were, where they died. Um, interestingly, now they're using clear resin so you can see the bones, because the bones are still there and they've just sunk to the bottom. So now they're using clear resin, which is pretty kind of cool and also creepy. So here we go. So we have like a father, or a father, a parent and a, and a child perhaps, uh, kind of dying together in the street, not great. And then we have the dog. And usually in a large class, that the dog elicits a, aww, even though I just showed a parent and its child and nobody, aww, but usually the, the dog always gets a, aww, poor doggy. Not so for people. Um, let's see. So yeah, um, it, it's rare to find bones. And frankly, uh, in the United States, when we're uh, working you know, uh, professional archaeology, we pray to not find bodies. If you bump into a, I've heard of people, I've never seen it, but I've heard apocryphal stories of people saying, uh, if you find a body, just like pretend you didn't because it's such a problem in terms of logistics to deal with. Because number one, you have to call the coroner. You stop work, you immediately call the coroner 
even though you know as an archaeologist you're down here, you're digging through potsherds that are 5,000 years old, uh, no, 1,000 years old, you know it's not a modern death, you have to call the coroner. Coroner has to come and confirm, yeah, this is not a modern person. Eh. Although if you were a serial killer and you were really smart, you'd bury all your bodies with, you know, like ancient artifacts so that would put them off the scent. Not suggesting you do that. Don't do that. Anyway, um, anyway, so uh, yeah. And uh, for example, my, I got an email once from my dad, who used to be the police chief in a small town in northern Min oh, Bemidji, Minnesota, and uh, they were excavating um, footers for a uh, pavilion in the park. They found a burial. My dad took a picture and sent it to me. I was like, hey, can you tell me if this is modern or not? And it was clearly not modern. I could tell from the wear on the teeth and the stuff they were found with it. And then my dad got in trouble because he took a picture. And you're not supposed to take pictures of, no, no because it's, you know, um, traditional uh, Native American societies uh, were often wary of having their pictures taken as it um, was seen to be taking part of their soul. And so taking someone's picture without their permission, even though they're dead and can't give permission, uh, interesting. In some cases, yes, but in many, uh, at least in Mesoamerica, I know that uh, there are three parts of your soul, and part of it stays with your bones forever. That's why they had those skull racks and the cross, skull and cross and all those things. They were like spiritual batteries because part of your soul stayed with those bones. And so, like the Aztecs had these big skull racks of all their dead uh, warrior captives, um, and they would like put them on. The, but it was like you have like a thousand souls power right there, you know, so it was like a spiritual battery. So anyway, taking pictures, you know, you can't take pictures. You have to um, trace the lineage to see if it's related to a tribe. If that tribe's not uh, recognized by the government, then you have another problem because they're going to be wanting to have control of it, but technically they're not recognized. It's this whole, it's a huge nightmare. Not to mention just the that's just the politics part of it. I'm not even talking about the logistics of caring for bones. When we were in Mexico, working on the coast, we found tons of bones on the surface. We didn't expect to find bones on the surface. And while we didn't have the political problems, we had to deal with the safeguarding and uh, pr protection of bones that had been soaked in salt water. And it was just such a problem. So it's great when we have them, but it can be a huge can of worms. Let's talk about more of that on Friday. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.